They don't have to be supported by documentation. They don't have to be objective reasons. It could be, I don't think she was a good fit. And whenever, however any of those reasons the defendant comes up with, the burden then shifts back to the plaintiff to, to show that there is a jury issue, a disputed material fact as to each and every one of those issues. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my co-host, the hell of an engineer, Lester Tate. Yes, uh, the Yellow Jackets (laughs) uh, post a big victory uh, uh, after uh, uh, getting a new coach uh, last Saturday night, and I'm very, very proud of them. Uh, But I also want to say happy birthday to my co-host. I meant to send you a text and call you the other day, but uh, yet yet another trip around the sun. And it's been a great trip around the sun with you as my co-host here on See You in Court. I I totally agree. And I know you had had a a birthday two weeks before mine. We're two weeks apart, kindred spirits. And well, you're very, you're very, you're very kind there, Robin, because we're we're two weeks and a couple of years. Oh yeah, right. I'm on on the older, grayer, grayer, but not necessarily (laughs) wiser end of that. So, um, uh, but happy birthday to you! And uh, thank you. As uh, as a thank you to our listeners, I will not sing today, uh, so they (laughs) don't have to have to put up with that. I I thought when I uh, introduced you as a hell of an engineer which means you graduated from Georgia Tech, which is a hell of an accomplishment. But I thought you were going to say, I graduated from Tech, but I'm not an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I I used to say that a lot, but I I just I just don't uh, I just don't anymore because we had to take engineering classes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you had to take uh, and and I'm, I'm not nor do I aspire to be an engineer. I, th- I thought briefly about switching to an engineering major until I got uh, two D's in calculus and an F in chemistry, all of which were required courses for uh, engineering. But I will say that uh, uh, Georgia Tech is a great school uh, to attend, even if you want to go to law school, because I felt law school was pretty easy after uh, after four years of Georgia Tech, where no one who actually went there says they graduated from. They say they got out. It's like being discharged from the penitentiary. Uh, you got out. And so I, I to actually get out. Yeah, you served your you served your time. I did. And got out. Well, today we're delighted to have attorney Stephen Wolf and Cheryl Legree, Legree with us. Um we're going to introduce them and talk about all things employment law. Cheryl and Stephen are partners in the Atlanta law firm Legree, Atwood and Wolf, uh, which specializes in employment law, which is a very interesting uh, 
practice of law in, I would say, very difficult. And we're going to learn about that. But uh, hats off to them for doing this uh, and making this their niche. Let me first introduce you to Cheryl Agree. Her practice focuses on representing employees in all aspects of employment law, including claims of disability discrimination and retaliation, sexual harassment, FMLA, interference and retaliation, gender, pregnancy, race, religion, national origin, age discrimination, and wage and hour disputes. She also represents individuals in contract negotiations and employment separation negotiations. Cheryl is an active member in Georgia Association for Women Lawyers, the Atlanta Bar Association, the State Bar of Georgia. She founded GAL, that's the Georgia Association of Women Lawyers. She founded their solo and small firm affinity group and is a past president of GAL. Cheryl is also a member of the National Employment Lawyers Association and is a past president of the organization's Georgia chapter. Cheryl is admitted to practice law in Georgia and South Carolina. She is also admitted to the United States District Courts for the Northern and Middle Districts of Georgia and the United States Courts of Appeals for the Fourth and Eleventh Circuits and the United States Supreme Court. Cheryl lives with her cat Dixie and dogs Luna and Molly in Decatur, Georgia. In her spare time, Cheryl enjoys spending time with friends, listening to live music, and traveling. We also have with us Stephen Wolf. Uh, Stephen has devoted his entire legal career to helping individuals stand up to their employers. He helps people fight for overtime pay that their employers have illegally denied them. He helps people overcome unlawful workplace discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, and helps people negotiate severances and new employment contracts. Steve has successfully represented people from all walks of life, from all industries, and on all rungs of the corporate ladder, from entry level to C-level. Steve attended Boston University for undergraduate and then Emory Law School. Steve is married to his wife, Christiane, who is a corporate attorney, has two sons, Jake and Caleb, and two dogs. Steve loves hiking, photography, and reading history, or anything to do with the space program. He is also more than halfway to his goal of hiking in every national park in North America. You can find out more about Cheryl and Steve at their website, law-llc.com. It's law-llc.com. Cheryl and Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having us. We're we're glad to have you and talk glad to be able to talk about this um, very complex and what I would say is very difficult area of our law uh, that I think a lot of people, including lawyers, don't really um, understand or have a good grasp of how difficult a, a job you guys have. Um, so if we could just start, if you don't mind, to talk about a little bit about just employment law basics. Um, explain to our listeners uh, what kind of cases are employment law cases. Um, I know there's Title Seven and discrimination, and I talked a little bit about that in your introductions. But can you fill us in on just kind of the basics there? Sure. So you've got, and Cheryl, jump in anytime and interrupt me. I mean, you've got several different types of of employment cases. Broadly speaking, you've got the 
overtime, wage hour sort of cases that are under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a law that was passed during FDR's administration. Um, then you've got what I think most people probably think of when they think of employment discrimination, which is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That was part of the civil rights uh, legislation in the 1960s. And that's what the, the, the most generally applicable law that prohibits things like race discrimination, sexual, discrimi sexual harassment, gender discrimination at work. Um, and then you've got other statutes as well that uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act that protects people with disabilities and entitles them to reasonable accommodations. Um, you've got the Family and Medical Leave Act, which uh, sometimes interplays with the ADA and sometimes doesn't. Um, you've got the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which does exactly what you would think it does, prohibits age discrimination. Um, and then you've got a lot of these statutes have anti-retaliation provisions attached to them. So they not only make it illegal to discriminate, but they also make it illegal to fire someone for reporting discrimination. Um, and then you've got Sometimes you've got sort of subject matter specific or industry specific whistleblower protections that can apply in certain circumstances. I think that generally covers the the, the, the broad strokes of it. All right. And and y'all do pretty much any any of that, I take it. Any kind of case like that in that umbrella, you you will represent a client if you think it's a case you can win. That's right. Yeah. So uh, when uh, Robin mentioned my Georgia Tech affiliation starting out and uh, uh, contrary to what some might think, I actually discovered I really liked the law at Georgia Tech because I took a lot of business law classes. And I remember, still remember sitting in uh, an auditorium one morning when the law professor comes in and he starts talking about this thing called summary judgment, which I'd never heard before. And I was aghast that uh, that people actually wouldn't get a jury trial, you know, on, uh, on anything at that point, because just as, a, uh, uh, I thought, uh, I thought bright, I didn't know how ignorant I was, you know, 18 year old, I thought that, you know, oh, you always get that, but overcoming summary judgment is like so hard in these employment cases. And, uh, you know, I've gotten hired in a lot of cases where employment lawyers, they get they beat summary judgment. Then they want me to try the case because they've never tried a case. Mm. But if I were waiting around for that call, I'd starve because, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen that much. And so I've since learned that the the main thing is there's an issue of fact. It ought to go to the jury. And I, I think I know how you all feel representing, you know, em employers that the system is sort of employees, I'm sorry, that the system sort of stacked against against you. But, you know, supposedly anything that has the disputed issue as to material fact should go to a jury. Can you explain to me how repeatedly it gets justified in the Northern District and the 11th Circuit that there's no disputed issue of material fact? You want to go first on this, Cheryl, or you want me to take well, it? I wish I could explain it. Um, you know, something you said, Robin, was so funny to me. Of course, I'm going to take these cases if I think I can win them. But here's here's the issue. We take the cases knowing that, you know, if you can't get it resolved before summary judgment, there's 80, 85% chance you're going to lose that summary judgment. even if you. And, and, and I explain to my clients all the time, I've 
survived summary judgment on claims I never thought I would and lost summary judgment over and over again on cases I thought would and should survive. And, you know, I'm a frequent flyer in the 11th Circuit. I appeal if I think I should have won. Um, but where does that really get you when I think their reversal rate right now of the district courts is around 18%. Um, yeah. I feel like that's what a mediator told me, an 11th Circuit mediator told me in the last month or two. But, you know, it doesn't mean I'm not going to fight. It, you still have to fight. And, you know, let's reset. All of these cases have disputed issues with material fact. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, to me, some of what I've seen, it looks like. Judges use these cases as docket clearing measures. Well, yeah. some, some of those, it looks like to me that it requires uh, uh, it, it, it requires you to actually have written proof, which is, you know, of discrimination, even though that's not anywhere in the law. But, you know, if it's, you know, if you uh, use racial epithets uh, in front of your employees, unless you've sent an email with them in it, it's really hard to get past. Am I am I misjudging that? You, you uh, don't, at all. You're not misjudging me. So you, you, the question you had, you don't you don't need written proof, um, but you do. But that certainly helps. And it doesn't all it doesn't come by. You know, we don't come by it as often as we wish we would for reasons you can understand, I'm sure. But but you had the first question you asked Lester was, how is it justified in the northern district of Georgia? I think is what you asked. And, and yes, and the, the way I see it is this way. This, these statutes. All the statutes say, whether, regardless of which one, is it shall be illegal to discriminate based on a protected trait. That's all. They, they don't they don't define a standard of proof. Generally, they don't define uh, any, anything more than that broad principle. And so what's developed over the last really several decades, starting from really 1991, when they amended Title VII to allow jury trials, because before the 1991 amendment to the Civil Rights Act, jury trials were not allowed. And in the first few years after that happened, you started having a lot of jury trials because they were accustomed to having a lot of bench trials. Um, and then what started to happen is employers started getting tagged <laughs> with jury verdicts. Um, and so what's evolved over the last few decades is a massive body of completely judge made law that consists of ways of granting summary judgment, ways of finding that there are no material disputed facts by judicially defining to irrelevancy things that are in fact material disputed facts. Um, and th these are things that are not based in the statute. These are all just judge-made uh, ways of analyzing cases that result in in dismissal. And, and, and before you think I'm being a conspiratorial sort of plaintiff's lawyer, I'll, I'll give you a one discrete example that that, that that comes to mind um and we can talk you know we can talk as much or as little about this as you'd like but one rule that gets applied in the vast majority of cases there's there's some indication that this may change but it will be a process for it to change but this has been the rule at summary judgment for decades is that even if we have a a solid prima facie case, even if we've got some evidence like Lester, you were saying, maybe we've even got a written uh, an email that that shows racism or shows sexism or whatever the case may be. That doesn't win the case for us. All that does is shift 
a burden of production to the defense to state any reason that would justify terminating the plaintiff. And it can, and there's no limit. It could be one reason, two reasons, 10 reasons, however many reasons they want to come up with. They don't have to be supported by documentation. They don't have to be objective reasons. It could be, I don't think she was a good fit. And whenever, however any of those reasons the defendant comes up with, the burden then shifts back to the plaintiff to, to show that there is a jury issue, a disputed material fact, as to each and every one of those issues. If you don't, summary judgment can and most often is denied. Now, take, a same, take the same situation at trial. Imagine it, at, tri at a trial, federal juries are instructed that if a witness is impeached or, or you don't find their testimony credible, you can disregard any or all of their testimony. You don't have to disregard it all, but you can. And imagine that same case at trial, the defendant gives three reasons for letting the plaintiff go. I don't know. Uh, she showed up to late work. She showed up to work late. She turned in her TPS report a week late and uh, somebody complained about her. And through discovery, I show that she didn't, in fact, turn in the report late. Here's the email that showed she turned it in on time and she wasn't late to work. Here's her time cards. So jury issues as to both of those. But I can't disprove that somebody complained about her. Most often, a judge will dismiss that case at summary judgment, even if I've got additional evidence that shows that the, guy, that the decision maker had a, had a racial bias. But at trial, if the case got to trial, a jury would, wouldn't have to, but could see the guy get impeached as to reasons number one and two and say, well, he's probably lying about three because it's a common sort of human experiential judgment to make. And it's totally within the ways within the jury's authority to do that based on how they're instructed. But on a regular basis, cases like I just described are dismissed at summary judgment. And, and nothing in the statutes say anything about that sort of a dismissal being permitted. Um, so how is it justified? That's one sort of discrete example, but it's a representative exa of example of how this happens, even though in almost all of these cases, the ultimate issue is what was someone thinking when they made a decision? Um, so it, it, it makes it a very difficult playing field. Yeah, you would think that when you put up your case and then the employer puts up a, a, a so-called justification for his actions, by definition, to me, that makes it a jury question at that point. You would well, think. You know what? They've gone farther than that, Robin. Um, there's a doctrine in the 11th Circuit, and it's in other circuits, not all circuits, and not a strong in all circuits, but in the 11th Circuit, there's two things the business judgment rule and the honest good faith belief rule. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> honest good faith belief. Doesn't that sound like a jury question right there? Oh, no. sure. Um, it all goes to credibility. Right. Our cases get kicked out all the time. Literally, I thought in the 11th Circuit, this might not be the exact facts, but they accused the employee of stealing like, you know, $5,000. The employee didn't really steal $5,000, but they had an honest good faith belief that the employee stole $5,000. So you're out of court. I mean, that's what that means. You know, they're not, we don't second guess an employer's business judgment is in the jury instructions. <laughs> In wow. Yep. Yeah. That, that seems so unfair to the employee. It really is. It is. It is. I mean, we, I recently uh, I got a case where I'm co-counsel with one of my buddies. We recently got a case past summary judgment where honest, good faith belief was part of the defense. But it was 
you know, it was a close run thing. <laughs> it ought not to be. Um, but it was you could you could you could read the opinion. You could see the judge hemming and hawing and hemming and hawing. He finally says, well, OK. <laughs> um, but it, it shouldn't it shouldn't even be a close question when you're talking about the, the issue coming down to what was someone's subjective intent. Go ahead, Rob. I was going to say, explain a little bit, too, about in this type of case, when a defendant files a motion for summary judgment, meaning to kick the case out of court, it doesn't even go to your judge first. It goes to a magistrate, correct? <laughs> yes. yes. Like that, that doesn't. That, well, I don't, time. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, uh, explain that one. Our, the Northern District of Georgia is the only district in the entire country where this is how it works. Um, in most places, like in the Southern District, for example, and in the Middle District, especially in the Southern District, they'll use magistrate judges for discovery disputes, um, but not for summary judgment, not for dispositive motions. Positive motions have to go to the district judge because the district judge is appointed and not, for lack of a better word, hired, right? Right. Um, it's his job. Right. And somewhere along the line, and it's been a really long time in the Northern District of Georgia, they started, uh, well, first it was just Title Seven cases that was the magistrate. Now it's almost all of our cases, not FLSA, um, but almost all of our cases go to a magistrate judge first. So magistrate rule, and then we file objections. And then the district court, depending on what judge you get, um, well, they're always supposed to look at it de novo, right? And relook at the record for what you point out, for anything that I point out to them. Um, you know, some district judges do a more thorough analysis, but often, I'd say most of the time, um, the magistrate judge's orders are adopted as the order of the court. Yeah, I was going to ask you what percentage of time do does the district court judge just simply adopt the, I think it's called a report and recommendation, an R&R? &R? It, mm -hmm. it is. I would say often I don't know the percentage. Um, you know, I have had, not very often, but had a district judge say, no, 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 there's a disputed fact here. Uh, but I've also had, and I'm doing an appeal right now, where the district judge said, yeah, I know that he let it pass summary judgment, but... I want summary judgment granted. So, yeah. And so, what what circuit is uh, what circuit is probably the 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 I'll say the antithesis of the Eleventh Circuit or, or or the one that uh, affords employees the most protection? And I, and and in saying that, I got to think for a lot of our listeners, the idea that you know you live in one section of the country versus another section of the country that you got different rules is probably uh anathema to what they perceive the rule of law is but it, it seems that there are few better examples uh than in the employment arena yeah uh it, it would be the ninth circuit um now that's changed some would you say Cheryl? second circuit second circuit's also good that's the one that's based around new york uh, the Ninth Circuit is centered on California. Um, that's changed some because, you know, we had four years of the prior presidential administration that appointed a lot of judges. Um, and now you've, you've, you've sometimes got really sort of schismatic decisions coming out of these other circuits that used to be more uniformly in plaintiff, plaintiff uh, 
protective and now are, are, are becoming less so, but still it's, it's a quite a difference, quite a big difference. Uh, another, um, I guess, rule or law that may make it more difficult for your, your success and for your clients is um, caps on damages yep. in an employment case, yep. which I learned the hard way back, back when I first started my own firm back in 1994, I, I had an open door policy, meaning if it came in my door, I was taking it. <laughs> I was taking the case and I took a sexual harassment case that I learned by reading the statute. Um, yeah. And, and my demand, was, <laughs> my demand was 50,000 and they offered zero. Uh -huh. um, and we tried it and I got a $1.5 million verdict that was within 24 hours reduced to $350,000. So yep. immediately I had a, a bad taste in my mouth about practicing employment law and, and I didn't do it much after that. So yeah. can you talk to our listeners about that law and what, why do we have it? And what is it? It's hard to understand. So, yeah. So first of all, damages caps are unconstitutional. Let's start there. Um, <laughs> agree. Um, totally, totally agree. But, totally. you know, under, under Title Seven, so it, it started with the 1991 Civil Rights Act. So the 1991 Civil Rights Act, which was a, which a big amendment to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it on balance was, did a very good thing, which is it created jury trials, the right to a jury trial in Title Seven cases, which hadn't previously previously existed. However, I can only assume as a bone to the corporate lobby, it capped damages, and the damages are capped. I, I, uh, based on the number of employees a company has with the maximum allowable total compensatory and punitive damages together being $300,000 for a company of 500 or more. Um, and they've never been updated since 1991. They're not keyed to inflation or cost of living increases or anything like that. So just to give you an idea, I did a, I, I knew I was coming on this morning. So I looked it up on my, I looked it up this morning that a dollar in 1991 would be worth $2.17 today, which means that if they did not, if, even if they kept the damages caps in place, if they simply had raised them all along to keep up with the cost of, with, with the rises of inflation, your $300,000 damages cap today would be more than double that. Um, still not nearly enough to make people whole, but at least we're keeping up with inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and this becomes a huge problem for all the reasons you would imagine. I mean, um, it, it reduces employers' exposure. It caps employers' exposure. And in most cases, what it does is it ends up making the major driver of value be lost wages um, rather than emotional and punitive damages because they're capped. And most, most people are not that highly compensated. Um, you know, we have some clients who mm -hmm. are executives who, who, who end up getting better relief in terms of dollars because the comp their higher compensation drives a damages calculation. But a lot of our clients are you know, hourly workers or people who just make a normal, you know, middle lower class living. I mean, if you, you could have the most damning discrimination case, you know, in terms of liability evidence um, that would also translate into a punitive award, right? Because a bunch of horrible racial comments are, are, would be a basis for a, for a punitive damages award. But at the end of the day, if the most that you can subject the employer to is what, $100,000 in lost wages, something like this, plus 300K in, in, in cap damages, plus whatever attorney's fees you've accrued, um, 
it, it's just it's not that scary to a major company. Um, and it and 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 it, it sets up a situation in your settlement negotiations where um, where you know the the, the lost wages become um, sort of the, the employer's ceiling on what it's willing to pay. And so then they're negotiating down a gross settlement number, which is based on the actual lost wages to date. And so that doesn't come anywhere. A settlement like that comes nowhere close to making a person whole, um, even even for just their lost out-of-pocket wages. Um, so so it's, it's very difficult. So one of the one of the other things that in, in my dabbling, you know, I, I after trying to negotiate through the the summary judgment, you know, all the law and, you know, everything. I mean, I, I, I told my staff next time I think about taking an employment, you know, uh, case, <laughs> lock me in a closet with only phone books to read and let me tear up hundred dollar bills till the feeling goes away. Uh, but uh, I, I kept, I kept, you know, uh, I had a couple of folks, you know, had two, two uh, younger lawyers who got past summary judgment on claim and they, they call me, they, they've got to go to trial and uh, I enter my appearance and then the case settles immediately. Had another one where something like that happened. I'm thinking, oh, I've got this great reputation as a trial lawyer. That's why it was. Then I had a case with one of these lawyers who had been a, at a big firm, had defended folks. He goes, oh, no, they just don't have anybody that's ever tried a case. If you get past summary judgment, it's going to settle anyway. And, and so that had absolutely nothing to do with me, uh, uh, much to the uh, much to the uh, regret of my inflated ego at that point. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess what I want to ask you is if. You know, if summary judgment obviously kicks you out of court and then if you get past summary judgment, you got all those caps, you know, to try to overcome, which is going to limit what you're going to get in trial. I mean, isn't summary judgment just sort of dispositive of the case uh, one way or another? I, I mean, isn't it going to, uh, you, you know, it, it's it's almost never going to go to trial, it seems to me. It often is. It often is. It's not always, but it often is. I think it depends. You know, it's a hard question. Common wisdom. I feel like I've left you speechless, Cheryl. Common wisdom is you survive summary judgment, you settle, but that's not happening as much as it used to. Um, And you know, if you think about it, I feel like there's inherent conflicts in employment cases. Because if defense attorneys recommend settlement in a jurisdiction where summary judgment is granted so frequently, regardless of the merits of the case, is that even something a defense attorney should do? I've had one case in you know 20 years where they haven't moved for summary judgment. Um, and I don't think that's what summary judgment was ever meant to be. But now, um, and it may just be the cases that I have right now, they don't seem to be settling. Now, part of that I think is hard because our clients are super inclined to settle once they've survived summary judgment because we spend our the entire length of the case, which sometimes frankly goes on for nine years, telling them, you know, you're going to lose it. There's a good chance you're going to lose it summary judgment. You'll never get this case appealed. You know, I mean, I have one. It's nine years old. She doesn't want to settle. She wants to let the jury decide. And so it, 
and that's why if I seem like I'm struggling, that's why, because I still think settlement is normally the best way to go. But I will also tell you what makes it really hard to settle after summary judgment is defense attorneys think they should make us jump through all the hoops to get past summary judgment and then cut our fee to one quarter of what it is in order to settle. They don't offer realistic money to settle before trial because they don't see why I should get paid, even though they got paid all along. And that sounds very jaded. And perhaps I'm feeling a little jaded right now. But, uh, well, yeah, I mean, so, so just the caps are not always in play. I mean, they're, 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 these laws are a patchwork. And so there, there are maybe not more often than not, but there are often times when you can plead alternative claims or, 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 or claims that, that are not subject to the caps. And if you get claims like that past summary judgment, you're obviously in a different playing field in terms of your leverage approaching a trial. Um, but it often is summary judgment. It ought not to be, but it often is a watershed moment in the case because, you know, for the reason you just said, I mean, both defense lawyers mostly don't try cases and don't know how to and are terrified of it. Um, for us, it's the most fun we get to have, but we rarely get to have it. Um, and oftentimes the cases that we end up trying are against governmental defendants. Um, um, and private, private corporations tend, either they've got insurance, which sort of, you know, takes over, in, uh, as a negotiating um, lever, or they're just more pragmatic. And but the, the local government entities, they you know, there's 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 politics involved, and they require board approval and things like this. And sometimes they're just not able to um, reach settlements. And so a lot of a lot of the cases that we end up trying, not all by any stretch, but a lot of the cases we end up trying end up being against governments, not because we preferentially sue them. In fact, they're a minority of the cases that we have, but they end up being a disproportionate number of the trials that we have just because they tend not to settle as often. Well, the, so, the caps on damages don't certainly don't when you do have a caps case, it, it doesn't um, incentivize an employer to behave properly. Because they uh, think, hey, even if I do the worst and I just fire this person because of their skin color, what's the worst that can happen? Three hundred thousand? No biggie. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you a um a really. Uh, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about coming on this morning. I uh, uh, I had a conversation with a lawyer when I was. She was a, a very, very, very good defense lawyer. This was I was probably a second or maybe third year lawyer at this point. Uh, and. You know, in federal court, when you file a lawsuit, one of the very first things you do is you file something called a certificate of interested persons. It's like a usually a one page thing where you just each side just lists the people that they people and entities that have a financial stake in the outcome of the case. Right. And as a matter of course, that's, you know, the parties to the case and maybe you list the lawyers and that's it. Right. And this particular lawyer was representing a large company and didn't list her own client on the certificate of interested persons as having. <laughs> a financial outcome, a financial stake in the outcome of the business. And I was, you know, a plucky 27 year old version of myself or what have you. So I called up the lawyer and I said, you know, like, I'm, I'm not trying to pick a fight over some hyper-technical thing, but why didn't you list your client as having a, a stake in the outcome? And she just very matter of factly explained that, you know, the, and this was, I had a highly compensated client and she just very matter of factly explained that, look, your best day in court is your client's lost wages plus 300K and your fees. And my client's balance sheets and cash flow statements don't go out to enough decimal places for that to register. So they don't have a financial stake in the outcome. <laughs> and I, that was that was an eye-opening. She was just being yeah. matter of fact. She wasn't, you know, chest thumping or anything, but it was a 
that was that was a very eye-opening conversation for uh, <laughs> for a young Steve Wolf. Pete, you may not have been chest thumping, but you still want to smack the crap out of her, don't you? <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> there are, um, to clarify one thing, though, there's a statute 42 USC 1981, and for rape cases, there is not a cap. Right. Um, oh, okay. So, and it's the only type of case that there isn't. And for age and Family Medical Leave Act cases, they don't get compensatory or punitive damages at all. They get wage-based damages. And if you prove that the conduct was willful, you get two times the wages. So, you know, and Robin and I do a lot of, you know, tort work, you know, plaintiffs, plaintiffs, personal injury stuff. And, and you know, the plaintiff's bar, you know, and the plaintiff's bar about, uh, you know, starting from January when the legislature goes into session until, you know, May or whatever, when they leave about once, once every two or three weeks, you know, we get a email, you know, from all our colleagues that says, I heard somebody whisper the word tort reform at the mm-hmm. Capitol today. Uh-huh. We need to earn a hundred thousand dollars on the Capitol lawn before sundown. Who who will put the money in, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, we all go marching down there with pitchforks and torches and, uh, you know, hopefully quail the tort reform. And if if you put a scheme like this, like you all have described and you all labor in the vineyards under, which get, garners my undying respect, uh, you know, on, on plaintiff's lawyers, I mean, you know, I, I mean, torches and pitchforks. I mean, we, we'd probably have the plaintiff's militia down there or something, you know. Yeah. How, how, how has this not gotten changed uh, in, in an era really before, I mean, I, I know now it's federal law. There's a lot of gridlock, you know, with the, with the parties and with a closely divided Congress. Uh, but, uh, it, it, it just seems to me that this is the kind of thing that ought to be legislatively fixed or should have been at some point along the line. So is that, why hasn't that happened and is there any movement afoot to try to change that in the future? So statewide, I would say this, you know, California has a lot of state laws. Florida has state laws. Georgia does not. And it's not anything that we've been able to get any kind of traction on because Chamber of Commerce lived down at the Gold Dome. So so you're, you're saying there's no Georgia state law that prohibits discrimination. Is that right? It's, it's essentially right. Um, and okay. the reason I say that is there's a little bit of state law with not much teeth to it that applies to state employees okay. that we don't use to do because it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, there's gotcha. Gotcha. individual right of action here. No damages there. Um, but California is known as being one of the most clean and friendly venues because they have a ton of state laws. All the Northeast states have state laws that protect employees and some of the city, right? In New York City, you have New York City laws that protect you, New York state laws that protect you, plus federal laws. And a lot of times they forego even using the federal laws to try their cases in state, Missouri of all places. Most of their cases are filed in state court under their state laws because they're more protective of employees than the federal laws. And I don't know, Lester, how we could get any traction to change the laws federally because that's what really needs to happen. You know, I mean, (laughs) We were talking about it, and I know it's a pipe dream, and I'm too old, and I'm going to be dead before it happens, but I don't think summary judgment should be a thing, right? These are intense causes of action. How can anyone but a jury decide that? 
in my opinion. Um, but we don't have the money. The plaintiff employment bar doesn't have the money or any of the resources to get this through when you're fighting the chamber. Yeah, I mean, there, there has been, there is some movement. I mean, Congress, you know, they recently passed a statute that prohibited um, mandatory arbitration in um, sexual harassment cases. Uh, that was a response to the Me Too movement, um, why, which was sure. a big win for for em employees. You know, you know, I'd love to see them expand that to say that, you know, there should just be no mandatory employment arbitration full stop because there are plenty of other people who are, you know, in a similar position of having no leverage, but just have different types of claims. There's and and every once in a while, um, you know, you do get a surprisingly good decision. I mean, you know, the Supreme, it was just a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court handed down the Bostock decision that um, held that um, gays and lesbians are protected by Title VII. And it also had a lot of good reasoning in it that applies uh, more broadly, although it's yet to sort of make its way through all the courts. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these things would, a lot of the, on the plus side, a lot of what's wrong is not constitutional. And so it's subject to a legislative fix. Um, on the other uh, the, the downside is legislative fixes are hard to come by in the current political environment, like like, like you said, and, 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 you know, Walmart and Amazon have pretty good lobbies, and so does the Chamber of Commerce, and uh, it, it, it just, um, it, it, it's difficult to, you know, to get like a really broad, a widespread reform where they would go through and sort of, um, you know, do what they sometimes do when a really bad Supreme Court decision comes out, they'll legislatively change it to, to uh, fix the law back to what Congress intended it to be. Um, I think if most of the public had an understanding of what judges say their rights are in federal court as employees versus what they imagine them to be, there would be a broader public outcry. But fortunately, most most people don't have to interact with this part of the justice system. Um, and, and so on a daily basis, it doesn't come home to them, you know, how many times a woman can be touched by her boss at work with, before a judge will say that it rises to being a sexual harassment claim that's actionable, um, uh, for example. So, uh, you know, unless or until you get that sort of, I think, groundswell of support, it'd be difficult to, to make widespread change. We, we often hear this kind of blanket statement that Georgia is an employment at will state. Does that play a role in whether you're successful in your discrimination cases? Does that play any role or do you just ignore that for your cases? It doesn't really play a role in our cases. I mean, the rule is you can be fired for a good reason or bad reason, if not an illegal reason. And if they're violating Title VII, legal reason. Okay. Not really. All right. Then there's some case law that we haven't really touched on yet where the um, the law requires you to show other people called comparators uh, in the same or, I guess, similar situation as your client to prevail. Can you talk a little bit about that and and why do we have that? And it seems to me it's the only type of case where you have to do that. So, so you don't actually have to. Um, okay. And, and thank God. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You can. There, you you can show one of the ways that you can show discrimination is by showing a comparator, i.e., somebody who is, you know, outside of the of the protected class that your client is in, and 
in a similar situation, but was treated better, right? Um, um, you can show it that way. Uh, you don't have to. And, and one of the ways that the 11th Circuit has actually been pretty good recently is they've made pretty clear that you don't that you don't actually need a comparator anymore, even in cases where traditionally you might have had to have one. District judges don't often or sometimes feel like they don't have to apply that. <laughs> um, but but it's fortunate because proving a comparator is extremely difficult. Um, they've made it extremely difficult. And this is another example of the sort of how judge-made law at summary judgment makes cases harder to get past summary judgment than they would be to win a trial. Um, because in order for in order for a court to even consider your comparator as evidence at summary judgment, they have to be, I forget what the exact phrasing is, what, similar in all relevant respects or- Similarly situated in all material respects. Similarly situated in all material respects to your client, but outside the protected class. So first of all, there's many jobs where there's just not somebody similarly situated to you. You're the only person that has your exact job in the company, right? And so, and things as small as, um, a few years different level of experience in the job or a difference in one or two levels in the hierarchy or um you know uh you they say your client was fired for being late to work three times your comparator was only late to work once so they're not a comparator things like you know the, the, these these, these well, are things it, 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 you can take it to an even worse extreme than the courts have um you know, let's say you have a one of our clients is terminated allegedly for attendance issues, and they've retained five employees who got in fights at work. They're not comparators. Right. It has to be the same kind. If, if, if your client is fired for some sort of wrongdoing, it has to be the same. Your comparator has to have done the same same type of wrongdoing. Um, um, and it it and it, it it plays into summary judgment, right? Because at summary judgment, the only bit question the court has the business of asking is. Could a reasonable jury find liability? If the answer is yes, summary judgment, that's the end of the inquiry. Um, and when you present a case at trial, jurors are not instructed on a comparator standard or any such thing. If the comparator has been ruled in, which happens in a very small minority of cases, but if the comparator is ruled in, you just present the comparator evidence at trial and it's up to the jury yeah. to decide whether they're persuaded or not. A jury isn't instructed on and wouldn't anyway go through the analysis of, okay, before I consider whether the guy in the blue shirt is a comparator to the plaintiff who was wearing a white shirt, first I have to make a list of all the material similarities and decide whether they're the same or different. No, it, it would be a it would be a sliding scale, right? This is the way if if you have a lot of if you have a lot of strong evidence of intent, a weaker comparator might end up being persuasive. If you've got no evidence of intent and your entire case is riding on the comparator, that's a harder case. And, you know, ordinary ordinary people with common experience sitting on a jury would easily understand this and intuitively. But but at, at, at summary judgment, it's just another example of the, the judge made law that gets gets employed against us. And when so, you when, when you say judge made law, just to make sure we understand, that means that requirement's not in the statute. It's correct. what the judges have said you've got to do. That's correct. Okay. And and isn't that the definition of an activist judge? <laughs> it's called legislating from the bench, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which I thought they weren't supposed to do. 
it, 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 it has an interesting peculiarity of our area of law that, that the interests that generally oppose judicial judicial activism uh, have have established a favorable body of law that arose from judicial activism. Yeah, and another word would be hypocritical. That would also <laughs> yes. be a good word for it. Right. Yeah. So so uh, another interesting sort of tactical thing, and and I was uh, you're talking about comparators, which are. You know, you know, discrimination by definition is being treated differently from all the other people that you have. And of course, some of the defendants are uh, major corporations might have offices in, you know, 30 to 50 states and have a lot of similarly situated employees. Uh, it, it, it strikes me that the, uh, you know, the the records of what these comparator employees uh, might have gotten away with or not not gotten away with over time uh, is all in the hands of the defendant here. And you can make a, uh, a discovery request. And, and, you know, people, you know, discovery process, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things. It's sort of like when we had service by snail mail, you know, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that it worked as well as it did. You know, I think mm-hmm. uh, not, I'm not saying people don't, uh, that they're not more uh, litigants that are abiding by the discovery rules than are trying to abuse them. But this seems like a real case that's sort of ripe for abuse there, because basically the the ticket to a jury trial is, you know, it's 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 like Willy Wonka and the magic ticket. You know, it's it may be hidden somewhere up in all that discovery and you've got to go through that and you got to have somebody go look for it that wants to find it instead of somebody that just, yeah, well, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know about, don't know about any of these other employees, you know, we could go look, but uh, so talk about uh, just a little bit about, is is that an issue or am I just, am I just uh, spitballing here? No, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And part of the issue now is with proportional integrity in federal court. Um, you're going to get an objection that it's not proportional to ask for disciplinary information on everyone in a plant, for example, right. or, or especially if you try and go outside the facility where the employee mm-hmm. works, you're almost never going to get that anymore. Um, and comparators are like, let's say there's only one director of accounts receivable. So the defendant's going to say, oh, no, there's only one person in that position. You don't get files from any other employees. And depending on which magistrate does you get, crapshoot whether you're going to get them or not. Um, So, you know, it is ripe for discovery, difficult discovery. You know, that's another you brought up proportional discovery. And thank God we don't have that in Georgia state courts. But. Um, I thought that was, again, um, usurping the jury's role and your role as plaintiff's counsel because it's a it's your case. It, you're you're you decide what you need. I mean, the judge shouldn't get to decide whether you need to see a document or what's important to your case to prove your case. But it seems like another handcuff on plaintiff's attorneys um, to be able to get the the documents they need in discovery to be able to prove their case. Yeah, you know, thankfully I have not had the proportional discovery invoked against me. I mean, I've had people raise the objection, but I've not had it actually applied against me by a court yet. Um, 
But it, 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 there is a nice little feedback loop there, right? The value of your case is capped, and you, so it's a low, so it's a quote unquote low value case. So your discovery needs to be proportional to the value of your case. But you need broad discovery to prove it because it's an inherently yeah. hard thing to prove. Uh, it, it, it's a wonderful little catch twenty two. But thankfully, I haven't I haven't encountered that yet. Um, the objections that we run into much more often in discovery are things like just you know the usual it's irrelevant or it's outside the scope overly broad overly broad or some <laughs> such nonsense and you know then you well, got, they're not a comparator or they're not a comparator because they reported to you know they reported to john and your client reported to bob or something like that oh um, my goodness yeah and that magistrate process by the way they also handled the discovery so uh the the the, the discovery process for handling a dispute in most federal court, in, in the most for most judges in the Northern District of Georgia now, is that before you're allowed to file a motion to compel, you first have to confer with the other side, of course. Uh, we would do that anyway. But then you are not allowed to file a motion to compel until you first had a telephone conference or sometimes a Zoom hearing with the magistrate judge, who typically will not enter a ruling, but will give you a preview of what their ruling is li is likely to be if you file a motion and perhaps give you a gentle reminder that the party that loses a discovery motion in federal court can be made to pay the other side's attorney's fees for handling the discovery dispute for for having to brief the discovery dispute now and then the diff then, then you're faced with an obviously difficult set of choices right do you file the motion that the judge has just told you she's going to she or she or she is going to deny um if you don't, under the rules of the 11th Circuit, merely by having that phone conference, you've not preserved the issue for appeal, right? So merely to preserve the issue for appeal, you have to have the phone conference, file the motion. Then if you lose the motion with the magistrate judge, file the motion with the district judge who, and only then have you preserved, have you preserved the discovery of objection for appeal. So it, it, it is, uh, and as you pointed out, Lester, you know, most of our cases are guerrilla warfare, right? Most of our cases, in terms of the evidence that we have when we're starting out, we got what's in our client's head, whatever the client may have brought with them from work before they cut off his or her email access the day they fired them. Maybe we're fortunate enough that, that there's a few ex-employees who are willing to talk with us um, and share their experiences, but that's typically it. And the defense has got access to all the corporate records, all the witnesses who are still employed, all the witnesses who are no longer there, but may have been severed out with agreements requiring them to cooperate with the company in litigation, which is pretty common. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty easy to get witnesses to cooperate when you sit down with them in the corporate conference room with their boss standing outside and say, tell me all the bad things that you ever heard about the plaintiff. So it's, it, it, it's, you, you have, you really have to play, you know, you have to, it's a, it's a guerrilla fight. You're, uh, you're the underdog and they've got the resources and you're just, you just, it's a dog fight every time. One, one other topic uh, I wanted to mention and talk about a little bit was sexual harassment cases and the disconnect between what ordinary walking around human beings who are employees think is sexual harassment versus what actually gets you past summary judgment and, and helps you win a case. Is there a, 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 a disparity there between what normal think people would think versus what really has to happen to have a case? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Go ahead. We call it around here, you get one free butt grab. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was only one. 
I know. I wish it was the only one. I, I mean, part of it is here's what's not sexual harassment. If anyone's listening to this podcast and is not a lawyer or is a lawyer and doesn't practice this area of law, if your boss asks you out and you reject them, that's not sexual harassment. Um, <laughs> well, it's worse than that. I mean, I mean, we get, you know, there are cases. If you want to go through the, you know, sort of like parade of horribles, just hop on, hop on your Lexus Nexus and search 11th Circuit and Northern District of Georgia decisions on sexual harassment, and you will find case after case where, you know, the the boss only made, oh, I don't know, a half a dozen sexual comments to his uh, subordinate over the course of a few months, and only touched her breasts once, and so. Uh, the, the and the court is not here to be a, a public civility board or whatever that phrase they use. Summary judgment that summary judgment granted. Um, did, did it used to have to be maybe it still is severe and pervasive? Is that still the language? It's severe. severe or pervasive. Severe or pervasive. Severe or pervasive. Okay. But, um, this, this is our Halloween, uh, our, our very scary Halloween uh, legal show here. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, uh, like we're going in the, 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 the haunted house here. I mean, one of the, one of the hardest conversations. Yeah, you, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers that I know who do sexual harassment cases have stopped using Title Seven and started filing them in state court. And that's been going on for years. Um, mm-hmm. But it really, this is one area where it really depends on what judges you draw. That's true. Um, and I, I take it that sexual harassment, actual sexual, uh, actionable sexual harassment in Georgia is different than actual se- sexual harassment in California or New York. Oh, without question. Yeah, it, yeah without because of the differences in the, sorry, in the federal circuits, yeah. Without question. But I don't think there's a single judge in the Northern District who sees it the same way, right? I mean, there are some judges who will do what the 11th Circuit has done on occasion, but not all occasions, which is say, oh, no, only happened 16 times, it has to happen 18, right? <laughs> uh, literally, like there's people who, I can't tell you how many briefs I've seen where it said, well, I counted, and instead of looking at the totality of the circumstances, which is frankly what under the law they're required to do, under the totality, they're saying, oh, but, mm-hmm. and it, I, I put some of this on the circuit court that they've made it hard for the district court to do what the district courts want to do. And they have not kept up with norms because a lot of these cases are really old. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, and, and sensibilities in the workplace have changed. Absolutely. That's right. They've yeah. evolved. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the, you know, the the so-called landmark cases that they cite for what constitutes actionable actionable harassment are cases that were decided in the '80s um, or the early '90s. Um, you know, at, the attitudes have changed quite a bit since then um, uh, about what should be permitted, uh, but the law has not kept up. I've heard district judges say on this issue, "My hands are tied." Yeah. By the circuit opinion, I don't think wow. it's right. But I know I'll get reversed if I don't. So so when you guys decide to take a sexual harassment case, does it basically have to be rape? No, 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 no. It doesn't have to be like that. It no, not bad. that bad. Somewhere no. between rape and groping. It has well, to be. I'll tell you, I will tell you, sexual harassment cases are the cases that settle most often. 
And is that because they don't want the publicity? I think that's a part of it. Yeah, it can be. And it's also, you know, it also is, I mean, in a world where all the cases are fact specific, notwithstanding the court's best efforts to make them not be, um, sexual harassment is particularly because it, you know, it comes down to things like the exact words that were used. Yeah. How close was he standing when he did some such terrible thing? And, 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 you know, you've got and in a sexual harassment case, you don't often have to grapple with the issue of proving subjective intent the way you do in like a raw in a, in a, in a legal termination case, because the intent is sort of apparent from the actions. Right. Um, 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 so you don't have to sort of prove what was in his head. I mean, if he's grabbing a woman, it's pretty apparent he's grabbing. You her know what? Yeah. You know what he was uh, thinking. Right. We're, ho right. we're hoping. Right. Right. We're hoping. Um, they are some of our better cases, though. And there's God. God bless the employers of the world. There's no shortage of them. A lot of, lot of them out there, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me ask each of you this. Um, you've both had your careers and, and, and still just working on employment law. You've decided that's how you wanted to practice law and the cases you want to specialize in. Um, first, I'll start with you, Cheryl. Looking back on your career, do you have a favorite case or trial that you, you go... Okay, there it was. That that that's why I do what I do. That special moment. Well, so it's all the little cases. There, I want it's twofold. All the little cases where I've actually I do a lot of disability work, and a lot of my clients have cancer. Um, and when I can help them in any way, even if it's just talking to the employer and getting the accommodation for them that they need, so they can get the treatment they need, so that they can be able to work um, full time, you know, those are, those are the ones, those are the reasons I do what I do. I think my favorite trial was um, down in Columbus, we sued the Muscogee County Sheriff and they found that my client clients, both of them were discriminated against because of their gender. And one of them was uh, the equitable relief was that she got the next captain's position, which she got within months because one of the captains sadly died. And so she got promoted almost right away. But even better than that is she felt empowered to retire and run against the sheriff who had discriminated against her and beat him. So that was pretty awesome. Um, we, we, we call that poetic justice. <laughs> she got beat the next time around in an election, but she was sheriff for a while. And from everyone I know, she did a really good job. That's cool. Um, you know, but it's little things that don't even make it to litigation that I think are probably some of the best wins we get. Steve, how about, how about you, Steve? A favorite case or trial? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to pick just one, but since you're asking me, I mean, my, my, one of my other partners, Eleanor Atwood and I, who she's one of my best friends in the world, we've known each other for 20 some odd years. We tried a sexual harassment case together not too long before the pandemic. I think it was 2018, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, got a one and a quarter million dollar verdict uh, for our for our client. Um, and uh, everything about we we were the star is just the line. I mean, you, you had a you had a stubborn defendant that, 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 you know, they just couldn't see it coming, couldn't imagine how they could lose, which is, you know, one of the best kinds of defendants to try a case against. Um, and we had a client who just 
had a memory like a steel trap and was unflappable on cross-examination. She cross-examined, I think, for four hours um, and just ate the defense lawyer for breakfast um, and lunch because she was on the stand for a while. Um, and, um, cool. and, and yeah, and I mean, and we had a, you know, you spent all the, you guys know, you know, you spend so much time preparing your client, preparing your client, preparing your client. And then the moment comes and you're powerless, right? In the moment, there's nothing you can do. Um, and you're just sitting there and you can, uh, you see, can pray. Yep. You sit there and, pray <laughs> and you hope the jury doesn't see you pray. And even though you're sitting right next to the jury, <laughs> you pray in absolute stillness. And, uh, and our, she gave our client in this case, gave the single best answer that I've ever heard a client give on cross-examination. Uh, the defense lawyer had this, sort of theory that our client viewed herself as being uh, special and different than everyone else in her department. And, and that, that she was, re- this was really just, she was just, you know, out, out to uh, grind an ax against her employer. And it didn't, and that's, that's why she sued them. And she had a, it might've been a 25 or 30 minute line of questioning that was going nowhere, but she persisted all with it. And she asked this sort of dramatic culminating question. You know, she's standing on that. She's right up against the jury rail. I'm, I have the seat closest to the jury box. So I'm right now. I'm, you know, two, three feet away from the, from the closest juror watching this go on. And the, 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 the culminating question for this line of cross-examination is something like now. So what, just what was it that made you think you were so different and special than everyone else? And our client who we had not prepped for this question, because we never <laughs> would have imagined she would be asked it. She just calmly, looks at me and looks at Eleanor and looks right at the defense lawyer and goes, well, I was the only one that was being sexually harassed and retaliating against, retaliated against for reporting it to HR. <laughs> <laughs> and the defense lawyer let out an audible. And that was, uh, that was, that was probably the case right there. Game so, over. Yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> so that was a, that, I'll, I'll remember that. Probably <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, if if you are mentoring a young attorney in Georgia starting out, what would you tell them about practicing in your area of, of practice of employment discrimination? Yay or nay? Uh, <laughs> we have three young associates, so um, if you have some thick skin, I think it, yeah. it's not, you're never going to be you're never gonna have a private plane in this practice area, you know? And if that's your goal, then you're not in the right one. Yeah, I would think you do have to have some thick skin with what you guys do. And a, and a desire to brush the dirt off your jersey and get back up and go right back in there, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Every day, Speak. take a vacation if you need it. You know, that's, that's one thing I'm telling young lawyers in all practice areas, take your vacation. Absolutely. Good. Good idea. Um, back when I started and Lester started, it was just the opposite. <laughs> you never took a vacation no. before you get fired. Yep. We did. We didn't know what mental health meant back then, but um, fortunately, we we are all evolving. Uh, I'm glad to hear. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful talking with both of you. But you know, we end our podcast with every guest. We ask this final question, and that is, how do you define justice, or what does justice mean to you? So I'm going to ask both of you that. Cheryl, ladies first. You know, I, I knew you were going to ask this question, and I find it such a difficult question right now kind of in the world why we ask it yeah area that i practice in i think justice for employees would be 
uh, if Congress got rid of summary judgment in employment cases. Um, I want my clients to get their day in court. And frankly, I think most of these cases would settle if there was no such thing as summary judgment. So. I, I've always said get rid of it in all cases. I mean, you can get a directed verdict, so. really, exactly. you know, entitled to. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think it least, would settle a lot more cases too. Yeah, the settlement rate would be higher. Absolutely be higher. Yeah, but I don't. You know, I hate having to tell people who come through the door. I would love to represent you. You need to know that there's a really good chance we're going to lose. You know, you're not going to see justice, and that breaks my heart every time. So, get rid of summary judgment. All right. Steve, how about you? How do you define justice? Oh, man. I don't know if I have a succinct philosophical answer, although I did think about it a lot before I came over here. I mean, I would say, at least as it pertains to my field, which is not quite the question you're asking me, but maybe the best I can muster, I, I would say it would be for there to be no relationship between your financial resources and how you're treated by a court. You know, I, when, when you when you look at you know when you look at the way summary judgment goes on when it's corporation versus corporation suing each other, and you look at how summary judgment goes on when it's an individual person suing a corporation or when it's a, an individual suing a police officer, you know, there's not ours is not the only field that has this this, yeah. this meat grinder to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's fun. You, you see it. I just think that that that's a an underlying problem that carries. It's, it's why the is why the damages caps haven't been improved. Why hasn't Congress made legislative fixes? You know, why is why does summary judgment creep in the direction of the corporation, but rarely push back in the in the in the direction of the employee? It's it's one of I think one of the underlying causes of of, of all of this is that um, there is you know the the the, the, the fi your financial status. Um, affects how you're treated by the law at every point where the law touches people. Um, and I think if you could not, if you decoupled those relationships, I think you would have something more approaching justice, at least for our clients. Yeah. And that that's a great point that that should never, I mean, that is never justice when it's the little guy against the big guy and the little guy has a bigger burden just because of the, he's being little, he's little. Yep. It's you know it's supposed to be an even playing field. Everybody's on the same level in a courtroom, but in employment law, it doesn't seem like it, it like it's like that. The, the the deck is stacked when you walk into the court against your client. So that 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 is a tough realization to deal with. It is. That's why. That's why it's a guerrilla fight. I mean, yeah. You just have to. You have to come at the cases differently than you can come at the cases when it's, you know, a piece of business litigation or something like that. Um, yeah. You just, you just win by being more aggressive, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> more selective and then really, really aggressive. Well, that's, that's wonderful to, uh, to know. And it's been great talking with both you, uh, Cheryl and Steve. Again, we've been talking with attorney Stephen Wolf and Cheryl Legree with the Atlanta law firm Legree, Atwood and Wolf. And you can find out again more about their firm and Cheryl and Steve at their website, law-llc.com. Cheryl and Steve, thank you both for being guests on the show today. We appreciate it. Thank you thank so you much guys. for having us on. All right, Lester, we uh, have this special time in our podcast now where we both have found a, an interesting law-related 
incident or event or article that we want to bring to the attention of our listeners and you're first. Well, uh, what I want to commemorate today is, uh, since it is October, not only Halloween, um, and maybe a scary month in the law, as we talked with our guests earlier, but it's also the month which the United States Supreme Court uh, reopens uh, its session, which runs from October through June, I think, or through May. And uh, so the article I want to share today um, and, and I want to talk about what the article says, but I, I, I want to encourage people to read the article uh, with sort of an open eye. But it's uh, an October 1st, 2022 editorial board opinion uh, in the New York Times entitled The Supreme Court Isn't Listening, and it's no secret why. And uh, it begins by recounting that uh, this year, uh, as the justices prepare to open a new term on Monday, fewer Americans have confidence in the court than ever before recorded. In a Gallup poll taken in June before the court overturned Roe versus Wade with Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Healthcare Organization, only 25% of the respondents said they had a high degree of confidence in the institution. That number is down from 50% in 2001, just months after the hugely controversial 5-4 ruling in Bush versus Gower. Uh, it goes on to recount uh, some of the decisions that have been made uh, by the Supreme Court and uh, also quotes uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who I think has uh, done a lot to try to bolster or maintain the court's reputation as a public institution. And uh, this is the quote from Chief Justice Roberts. And I, I, I want to point out that I admire him for what he's done to try to bolster the court's reputation because I, I disagree and this opinion disagrees with what he says. Chief Justice Roberts recently suggested that the court's low public opinion is nothing more than sour grapes by those on the short end of recent rulings. Simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for criticizing the legitimacy of the court, he said in remarks at a judicial conference earlier in September. The editorial opinion of the New York Times goes on to say this is disingenuous. The court's biggest decisions have always angered one group of people or another. Conservatives were upset, for instance, with rulings uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, which barred racial segregation, and Oberfell versus Hodges, which established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Meanwhile, liberals were infuriated by Bush versus Gore and Citizens United versus the FBC, which opened the floodgates to dark money in politics. The article goes on to say that the actual cause of its historic unpopularity is no secret. Over the past several years, the court has been transformed into a judicial arm, and it, it mentions the Republican Party. I think we could also say, uh, in some instances, the justices are appointed because they're believed to be an arm of the Democratic Party. But uh, my point is, I think you and I, Robin, have belonged to a lot of organizations. And one of the things we try to do on this broadcast is to uh, build respect for the courts. And one of the things that is becoming obvious to everyone over the last several years is that the personnel on the Supreme Court matters more than what the law is or has been over the last 50, 75, uh, 100 years. And uh, I, I don't think it's just sour grapes. And I think that those of us who 
uh, cherish the rule of law need to realize that uh, when you're saying, oh, the, you know, yeah, you know, the law is what the law is, regardless of who the judge is. I, I, I think that that strikes a note of disingenuousness to the folks who are listening. So I highly commend this article uh, to people, uh, even people who would disagree with the way that the finger is particularly pointed here, because I think it makes an important point. The law ought to be the law, not who the judge is. Yeah, it reminds me of our um, episode that we had Professor Eric Siegel on, uh, who who makes the argument that the Supreme, United States Supreme Court is not even a court. Um, and and that that's been a couple of years ago. And as as we approached Hobbs, now we're past Hobbs, and Roe v. Wade was overruled. I, I started thinking about that. And I think Eric Siegel was onto something. I think he may have been right. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I think that uh, legal uh, scholarship is reeling right now to try to find uh, some coherent uh, rule of law philosophy that would justify all of what has happened in the last several years. Because I don't think there's one that's out there. It's not originalism. It's not the living right. constitution. It's, you know, there there is no philosophy that I think does that. And I unfortunately am at the place where I think that you have uh, nine justices who are probably putting their own personal take on public policy ahead of what, you know, what the law is. Yeah, great point. Great point. Well, my... Uh, tidbit in the news uh, is about a case. It's actually a criminal case. We may have talked about it before a while back, but it's the case of Joey Watkins. And Joey Watkins has been in prison for the murder of a person. Um, the, The murder occurred over 20 years ago. He's been in prison for over, he's been in prison since 2001. So he was convicted when he was 20 years old. And now he was convicted in 2001. It's now 2022. Uh, so he's in, been in prison that whole time for murder. Today in the Georgia Supreme Court courtroom, his habeas corpus uh, appeal was argued. And it's very interesting to me because um, the Georgia Innocence Project got involved in this case and really made a difference. Um, I've read the the trial court, the habeas court's opinion, which was issued back in April of this year and granted habeas. And shockingly to me, uh, the attorney general's office appealed the granting of habeas corpus. And that's why we're in the Supreme Court. And his case was argued this morning. Um, For our listeners, you can go back and listen and watch that oral argument that occurred this morning at gasupreme.us. That's our Georgia Court of Appeals website. But I, Georgia I Supreme Court website. Georgia Supreme Court, I'm sorry. Yes, gasupreme.us. Um, and hit oral arguments. And all of their oral arguments are, are all there. And you can watch even older ones. Um, but I bring up Joey Watkins' case because of a couple of things. The habeas court ruled that the habeas should be granted on a, on three different reasons, any one of which should grant him a new trial and, and habeas relief, get him out of prison. One, one of them, one of the reasons was a juror, this involved 
Joey Watkins getting in his truck and driving from his home in Floyd County up to Rome where the, the, the shooting occurred, which is a 45 minute drive. And yet cell phone towers showed that he could not possibly have made a call, his last telephone call, cell phone call from the tower where he lived and make it up 45 minutes up to Rome in time to commit the, the murder. And a juror uh, on the weekend while they were deliberating made that drive herself and then came in and told the jurors, well, look, I made the drive myself and I know you can do it. And she made it on a Sunday, uh, not at the same time of day, but she did her own testing of the drive and, and gave her own testimony to her fellow jurors. Admitted that in the habeas uh, proceeding, it was a three-day habeas uh, hearing, and she was she testified and, and admitted she did it. It's a pediatrician. Um, so the judge said, no, we can't let jurors go out and do their own test and then tell the other jurors how it came out. But even maybe the second reason, which is also just as, I think maybe more flabbergasting, involves the death of a dog. They call it the grave dog that was found on the grave of this man who was murdered. And it turns out that the GBI had done a, a um, like an autopsy, I know it's called something else for an animal, but had x-rayed the dog, had actually removed a bullet from between the eyes of the dog's skull, uh, had that bullet and never produced it to the defense and never gave them any information about having x-rayed the dog, produced that they had the possession of the bullet, that um, a medical examiner had looked at the dog. And yet the prosecution, knowing this, um, argued that it was a calling card of Joey Watkins because he shot the, the man he murdered and then put his calling card by shooting the dog and putting it on the man's grave. And as it turns out, the GBI and the prosecution team knew that the dog had a different bullet in, in his head than what was used to kill the man uh, for which Joey Watkins was convicted. So it was no calling card. They never produced the, the um, exonerating sculpatory evidence that they were required to produce under Brady and had the bullet in the report in the, the courtroom at the time Joey was being convicted and did not produce it. Um, that is mind boggling to me that a prosecutor would do that. And she tested the prosecutor, who I believe is now a judge, uh, testified at the habeas as well. And the habeas court said, no, uh, he deserves a new trial for that. So it was argued. So the AG's office went on and appealed, uh, argued this morning. And, and I want to mention that from the time habeas was granted by the habeas court on, on April 11th, the appeal now, October 4, that's still six more months in prison Joey Watkins has had, had to serve. He's now served over 20 years in prison for a crime he likely did not commit. Um, and for, uh, based on really pretty crappy evidence. And so um, I'm hoping the Georgia Supreme Court does the right thing um, and affirms the habeas court, but we're going to see. And it's just another case to watch out for. But um, it's a, a striking case. It, it was on it was the subject matter of one of the epi, of one of the seasons of the Undisclosed podcast. 
And that's where I first got interested in it. And then it's it's amazing how many more protections there are uh, in civil cases uh, than there are in than there are in criminal cases. You know, the Georgia legislature uh, this uh, past session for the first time and uh, I think in 2011, when I was president of the state bar, we passed the evidence code which made uh, the Daubert standard, which is used in federal court to outlaw junk science uh, law in state court. But it was specifically exempted from uh, criminal cases until this last legislative session. And, and, you know, most of these cases that are getting overturned, um, the, the, the cold case convictions that are getting thrown out are getting thrown out on scientific evidence. Right. And it just became uh, impossible to justify, uh, you know, treating uh, a suit over money uh, uh, with greater care than uh, that, than a lawsuit over a person's life. Absolutely. And, uh, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, that's a case to watch. I, I don't know how yep. long it will take the Supreme Court to get an opinion out, but um, just go if you want to watch that argument. You can watch it on the Georgia Supreme Court's website and um, we'll be following that. All right. All right. Great so I have, Lester. Do you have anything else? I don't have anything else. Just want to say happy birthday uh, to you again. And uh, thank you. And uh, I guess uh, until next time, we'll we'll see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to See you in court podcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.